oh my goodness, this is destructive, terrible stuff, isn't it? It certainly isn't anything that's easy to read, although I will admit that when I was growing up, uh, I had my favorite parts of the Bible to read. And sometimes asking kids who are elementary school aged or junior high aged even to pay attention during a a 45-minute sermon, which is what I had when I was growing up in our church, uh, uh, that was a lot to ask people, to, uh, children especially, to pay attention to. And so I'd pick up my Bible and I'd read, because that was an acceptable thing to do while you were in church, even if the preacher was speaking. And uh, the par- my favorite parts of the Bible were, of course, the, the big battle scenes back in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and, and Joshua and all those places. That was exciting and interesting. And then uh, the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls in the book of Revelation. I mostly ignored the rest of it. I don't know what the deal with the dragon and the pregnant lady is, but this sounds interesting. But as I got older, of course... Uh, And as I considered, what if these things are really real? What if they're really true? Then they're not just an interesting sort of note, are they? Sort of, I can't wait to see the movie with all the special effects, right? I don't know if anyone saw the movie 2012, which came out in 2012, believe it or not. But 2012 was the year the Mayan calendar ended. And so a lot of people thought, well, if the Mayans know anything, it's that the world's going to end in 2012. So there's this great big disaster movie with, with John Cusack and a, a bunch of other people and how the world is, is coming to an end for some incredibly ridiculous reason. But you get to see like Los Angeles uh, uh, fall, have this giant earthquake where the whole thing just liquefies and falls into the ocean and the destruction as the characters escape from this. And this movie, of course, made hundreds of millions of dollars. Because we like to pay to see that sort of stuff, don't we? As long as it's only in the movies. And I think that's one of the dangers here in the book of Revelation. Is this isn't a movie. This isn't just a book. This is actually a picture of, or at least a symbol, of something true about our world. And that will happen in our world. And if we're going to be honest about it... We should be a little uncomfortable this morning. We should be a little uncomfortable. We only heard the first four trumpets, and as Dee read for us, the last three trumpets are the really bad ones. But the first four trumpets sound pretty bad on their own. A third of the land and the plants and presumably the animals burned up. A third of the sea turned into blood, which uh, I think we should understand symbolically or metaphorically. But in any case, that means nothing good for the sea because a third of the living creatures die and a third of the ships are destroyed. And then uh, a, a, some sort of star falling from heaven and poisoning a third of the earth's fresh water. Folks, we don't have a third of our fresh water to give up, do we? And then the fourth trumpet, the fourth angel, a third of the light from the heavenly bodies gone. Now, as I alluded to, I think that John is continuing to speak to us in symbols more than in uh, movie form, so to speak. Uh, What we are seeing is not Los Angeles actually being shaken apart by an earthquake and falling into the ocean, but rather powerful ideas, powerful truths that human language and and human visuals 
uh, struggle to describe. So much so that, that we need pictures instead of just words, because a picture, as we all know, is worth a thousand words. And I think that what we're seeing, and I, I'm going to kind of blaze through these four trumpets here very quickly to get to the significance of them. But what we're seeing is that the first three trumpets are removing the resources that sustain peoples and kingdoms. And maybe even the, three tr the first three trumpets are removing the resources that the current world system, and by current world system, I'm not just saying 21st century America, but rather I'm saying the world system that exists in the last days, from the time Jesus rose from the dead until the time he comes back, and really reflecting the truth of what it was like before Jesus came at all. These world systems, these power structures that are in place, that unfairly advantage some over others. I think that whatever our political affiliation is, we can agree that that sort of thing happens, don't we? We can agree that there are ruling classes in our world. We can agree that there are uh, people whose needs and whose uh, desires are very low on the totem pole if they're on there at all. And what we find is that we try, and keep, we try and keep fixing this, don't we, in one way or another. We try and say, well, you know, maybe this new system will, will bring a greater justice for everybody. Or maybe if we just, uh, and I'm, this just came to me, maybe if we drain the swamp, right, it won't refill, which I find unlikely. Maybe if we just, you know, maybe this solution or that solution, you know, maybe a new structure, a new charity, a new government, a new revolution, or no revolution, or whatever it will be, we keep coming up with all of these ideas. And you know what? They do deliver some measure of relief for some period of time, don't they? But have you noticed that there is no empire, or there's no government, or there is no social structure in our world that has lasted permanently. You notice that? You notice that the Roman Empire is gone? As a matter of fact, have you ever been to Italy and thought, how could this have even been the Roman Empire in the first place? Have you ever, have you noticed that America itself is only, what, 250-ish years old? If we go from the time, the signing of the Declaration of Independence. The world got along without us somehow <laughs> for all of those years before. And if there are any lessons from history, the world will get along without us again in the future. The influence, at the very least, of our country will diminish. It will. This is the nature of the world that we live in. And yet, we seem to have the same problems, don't we? There's never been a society where there's no poverty, where there's no crime. There's never been a society where all of the resources were really justly and equitably distributed in every way. And these first three trumpets are reminding us that the people who've taken advantage of the world in the way that it is will have their support structure drawn out from underneath their feet. They, too, will end up in judgment. Hail and fire upon the land, destroy land, animals, and crops in the first trumpet. How can you sustain yourself when you can't feed yourself? 
how can you continue to produce whatever you produce when the resources aren't there any longer, or when even your very factory and infrastructure itself is gone? A burning mountain into the sea cripples uh, not just it cripples worldwide trade. A third of the ships destroyed. A third of the sea animals destroyed. But more than this, for the people in the first century who were receiving this particular letter, did you know that Rome actually used to feed its people bread? You ever heard bread in circuses, right? That Rome used to distribute bread freely, at least in the city of Rome itself. And then they had the, the games, the gladiators and the Colosseum and all of these other things. Bread and, circum, uh, and circuses to keep the people, the mob, satisfied and fulfilled. And where did all that bread come from? Do you know? It came from Egypt. And how did it get from Egypt to Rome? On the sea. And God is removing that social stability from the Roman Empire. The people in the first century would have heard that and they would have said, this is going to mean the end of Rome. And I think we are meant to think the same thing. This is going to mean the end of whatever world order we find ourselves in today, whether it's the American world order or the Chinese world order or anybody else. God is equal opportunity in this way. God does not propose to lift up any one nation over the other, but instead is creating a new kingdom entirely. A blazing star into fresh water visits the impurity of the people back upon them in the third trumpet blast. And this actually is going back into this Old Testament idea. This, this wormwood appears in the Old Testament as well, where it refers to how the bad leadership by Israel's priests and kings trickled down into the people themselves and made them impure too. The third trumpet reminds us that our own impurity, as symbolized by the impure, the bitter wormwood water, is visited back upon us. God brings judgment to the world order apart from Jesus Christ. And then the fourth trumpet, where the sun, moon, and stars are darkened by a third, symbolizes separation between men, between humanity, and God resulting in spiritual deception that leads to horror and fear. What is true when the lights go down and get dim? You can't see as well, right? One of my favorite things to do growing up was to play hide-and-seek in the dark because I liked to park myself like right in the middle of the field or right in the middle of the room, but it was so dark no one could see you. You were hidden by the darkness. But darkness also separates, doesn't it? Darkness, uh, last night we had to put four children to bed, 11, 9, 7, and 6. And getting them into the darkness at night, where to Kayla and I, the darkness is this blessed relief from the length of the day. And it's like, now we can go to sleep. For children, it's different, isn't it? Darkness is the unknown. Darkness is separation. Darkness is, I don't know what awful things are happening out here. And we even experience that in some sense, don't we? When I was uh, working at the bank a number of years ago in downtown Seattle, right in the heart of downtown Seattle, uh, we had somebody coming in one, late one night to work on our safe deposit boxes, I think it was. And so I stayed at the, at the branch so that this person could come in and do his work. You know, I locked it up in the end, and I didn't 
didn't get to go home until 12 or 1 in the morning. And let me tell you something. Downtown Seattle is a lot different at 1 in the morning than it is at 5 o'clock when we normally quit. It was a lot scarier at that time because darkness separates us from the things that bring us safety and comfort. Darkness obscures what it is that we're actually seeing. We're struggling to make it out. And in the same way, the fourth trumpet separates men from God. The light that we need in order to see by and understand the truth about our world is diminishing, resulting in spiritual deception. What, do, what happens when we're disturbed in our beds at night in the dark and we look at that you know, coat hanging on a chair and all of a sudden it starts looking kind of sinister, doesn't it? And we see that corner that we've passed a million times in downtown Seattle, and now that it's dark and we can't see around it or into it, we wonder what might be there waiting to harm us. But notice, before we leave these four trumpet judgments, or at least before we back up and look at the bigger picture, a third keeps appearing, doesn't it? A third of the land and sea, a third of, well, a third of the land, a third of the sea, a third of the fresh water, and a third of the light in our world is struck and is judged, and something awful happens to it. But not 100%. Not all of the light, not all of the land, not all of the sea. And this is significant because it's reminding us, if, you, if you've been following along here in chapter 8, you remember we've just been talking about the last judgment in the sixth seal and in the seventh seal. Just to remind you, at the, end of, uh, at the beginning of chapter 8 here, at the end of the description of the seal judgments, it says, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer, which is a nice thing, with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the angel took that censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And when you hear those things together in the book of Revelation, it's symbolizing the final judgment. Back in the sixth seal, it says that there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. This isn't a third, is it? But this is the entirety of these things. So John has actually backed us up. He said, we were just talking about the last judgment and, and, and the way the world is leading up to this. Not necessarily individual events, but the character of the world leading up to the last judgment. He says, now we're going to back up and we're going to look at it from another angle, from a different angle. And from this angle, what we're going to see is where in the seal judgments, God is saying the world is characterized in these days by chaos. And you as Christians are caught in this. But don't worry, there is an order that is holding on to you. I have sealed you as my followers, and I will not lose a single one of you. I will hear your prayers, and I will answer them in just the right way at just the right time. And then in the trumpets, we're backing up again. We're hearing, okay, I've talked about you and what's going to happen to you, but now let's talk about the world in the lead-up to the last judgment. And by this, we mean everything from the resurrection of Jesus until whenever he comes back again. The world is going to be characterized by chaos on land and sea and in the water and in the light itself, such that kingdoms and empires will rise and they will fall. People will come to power and they will have it stripped away from them. 
And God says, if you see with the eyes that I give you to see, you'll understand that this is me answering your prayers. Answering your prayers. Here's the other reason we know that this is true. Because if you look at these trumpet judgments, they sound an awful lot like something we've heard in Scripture before. Like the ten plagues in Egypt. Remember, the whole Nile turns to blood. There's a plague of darkness. There are these echoes of these ten plagues. And how did the the plagues come about? Why, Why did God come and rescue his people from Egypt? Well, when God calls Moses, he says, it's because I've heard my people's cry. It's because they've been praying. And now I am about to answer their prayers in a spectacular way and deliver them from their slavery. God's saying, in a sense, that the ten plagues are still in operation. And when you see them working, you know they're at work to judge the nations and to judge the current power structures in the world. Not because they've never done anything good, not because they haven't made any contribution at all, but because people have bent them to their own ends instead of to mine. And we find that the trumpet judgments come in the context of God answering the prayers of the saints. Remember again, chapter 8, he opens the seventh seal, and there is silence for about half an hour, and then he sees the seven angels with seven trumpets, and then he sees the angel with the golden censer, and he's given much incense to offer, and I skipped this just a moment ago. It says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people. They rise up before God from the angels' hands. And then God throws the censer on the earth and says, this is the answer to your prayers. Your prayers are now returning upon the earth itself and judging what is unjust and what is evil. And it's in this context that the angels begin to blow their trumpets. It's in this context in which we understand that these things sound like final judgment, a third of the earth being destroyed, a third of the sea, a third of the light, all of this. And yet God's saying, my judgment is already in operation today. And if you are discerning, you will understand. You will see and know. I'm hearing your prayers and I'm answering them even now. Now, why does God do these terrible things? Here is where we back up a bit. As I was saying, trumpets are the inaugurated answers to the prayers of God's people, the beginning of him bringing justice to an unjust world. But secondly, the trumpets, because they're similar to the plagues in Egypt, they serve a similar purpose. First is in the battle of Jericho. Remember this in the book of Joshua? The people of Israel are finally entering the promised land. And the first thing they come across is a very fortified city with high walls, Jericho. And God says, I'm going to take care of this. As a matter of fact, first Joshua sends out spies, and everyone says, we have no idea what we're going to do. And Joshua's scouting around the country, and he comes across this guy, and he's got a sword out. And so Joshua naturally says, Uh, Who are you, and are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel says, I'm not for either you or your enemies, but I am the angel of the armies of the Lord. Are you for the Lord or for the Lord's enemies? Joshua's like, oh, for the Lord, for the Lord. 
And so God gives instructions to the people of Israel. He says, here's what you're going to do, because you can't, you can't break through the walls of Jericho. They are too strong for you. You are going to get the whole people of Israel, and you're going to walk around the, the city of Jericho. You're going to blow some trumpets, and you're going to do it for six days. And then on the seventh days, you're going to walk around six, uh, seven times. And on the seventh time, you're really going to blow those trumpets, and you will see me defeat Jericho. And so sure enough, that's what they do. They walk, across, they walk around six times silent, and the seventh time yelling and blowing the trumpets and doing everything, and the walls of Jericho crash down. God brings them down. He brings judgment on the evil in Jericho, and he delivers the rest that he had promised to his people. See, the trumpets here, borrowing that same symbolism, they remind us that God is going to win but he's going to win as the one who does the work. And the job of his people is to obey and to watch. To be just like the Israelites marching around Jericho. Does it feel, folks, like the culture is lost where we are in this place? I talk to a lot of you all the time, and I, I, I hear a lot of, like, I just can't understand how people are this way. I can't understand the places our society is going. What's happening? You know, and what, what kind of difference can we even make? It sounds like all we can do is just grouse about how bad everything is all the time. You don't have to raise your hands, but I bet there's some folks in here who feel like that sometimes. Powerless. There's nothing we can do. We're just in, on our way to hell. <laughs> but God didn't ask you to do anything. God asked you to be faithful. God asked you to love him and love your neighbors, and he is in charge of the rest. Love God, love your neighbor, and let God change the world. Now, frankly, I'm really glad. First of all, because it takes some of the pressure off, doesn't it? Folks, you don't have to fix the world. You couldn't anyway. And I'm not trying to, like, diminish you or us or Lemon Cove or anything else. We don't have the power to move the world in the way it needs to be moved. Even if we were able to convince everyone else to be on our side, we'd still be in trouble. You know why? Because when we got, when Joshua came into the land, remember, he saw the angel with his sword out. He says, who are you for? You for us or our enemies? And the angel said, I'm not for you or your enemies. I'm for God. The question is, are you for God as well? See, it's God's business to bring the results. Paul, talking about his ministry in Corinth, he said, you guys, you're fracturing. You say, Paul's so great, or Peter's so great, or Apollos is so great. But you need to understand what actually happened here. Here's what happened. I came, I planted the seed. Apollos came, Apollos watered the seed, but God gave the growth. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters, frankly, matters in the least, but only the God who gives the growth. The trumpets remind us that our job is to obey and watch, to be faithful and watch, to love and watch, and God will change the world. Secondly, because the trumpets are similar to the plagues, they show us that they are warnings to the people with ears to hear about the danger of living apart from God. 
Every part of that statement is really important. <laughs> they are warning those with ears to hear about the danger of living apart from God. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian writing in the first century, said this about the ten plagues in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. The plagues are for the good of mankind. He's thinking bigger than just Israel and Egypt. But the plagues are for the good of mankind, that they may learn this caution, not to do anything that may displease God, lest he be provoked to wrath and avenge their iniquities upon them. There is a big brother in our world, only he's not a brother, he's a lot bigger than that. There is someone who is watching everything that happens. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, anyone here have uh, a, a smart speaker in your home? I know this isn't exactly the right crowd for this, but you've got like an, an Amazon Alexa or a Google Home or an Apple HomePod or whatever they're called. I don't do Apple stuff, so I don't know. But if, if you do, every, every once in a while, you know, people, people say, oh, those things are major privacy issues, right? Major privacy issues. You know, they, people could be listening in on us anywhere, right? While we're in our homes, you know, while we're in the kitchen doing whatever we do, people could be listening in on us. And there are two things, I, well, three things I want to say about that. First of all, yeah, that there's a lot of truth to this, right? That is a privacy issue, and we should probably be concerned. But secondly, I also want to say we are less concerned about our privacy when we're doing good things. Have you ever noticed that? Do you know when you want to hide from people the most? It's when you're being naughty, right? It's fine for people to see you when you're being good. You might even want people to see you when you're being good. It's like, I'm doing this good thing. I hope somebody notices, right? But when we're doing something bad, we go and we turn out the lights and we close the door and we put on incognito mode on our browser. We hide so no one can see. See, if we were doing what was right, we wouldn't be so worried about the one who's watching. Secondly, and this is for free this morning, does anyone here carry a cell phone? This is participatory, so let me see. Anyone here carry a cell phone? Did you know you carry a speaker and camera with you everywhere you go, and yet you're worried about the smart speaker in your living room? Just wanted to point that out for you this morning. You know, maybe you'll do some life change a little bit later. I don't know. The plagues, the trumpets are to warn those, the things that we see in our world that are actually acts of God's judgment. Sometimes I think actual like God saying, I'm going to do something about this right now. And sometimes God saying, the world that I made, the way that it operates, this will come back to you one way or another. Some people call it karma. We just call it good sense, right? If you sow what is evil, you will reap what is evil. You reap what you sow. N.T. Wright uh, gives this to us in another way. He says there's nothing wrong with living on the earth, with being an earth dweller, as he translates here in Revelation. But the point John is making again and again is that there are many who have lived on earth as though there were no heaven, or as though if heaven there be, it doesn't matter. But John's whole book is about the reestablishment of the rule of heaven on earth itself. It absolutely matters. There is a God who is watching. And to those who are doing well, it is the great comfort. And to those who are doing badly, it is the great terror. And the trumpets 
and this pattern in history of, of destruction on the earth remind us that these things are true. But finally, the trumpets do one more thing. They remind us and actually reinforce in some sense. They remind us of the hard-heartedness of the world system and powers. But they also reinforce the hard-heartedness of the world system and powers so that God's judgment will be seen to be righteous. Once again, we're going back to the book of Exodus, to Exodus chapter 7. And this is where God actually, where the plagues actually begin. And before Moses goes in before Pharaoh. The Lord says to him in chapter 7, Look, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. And here's the key in verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen. Maybe that's a little uncomfortable this morning, and in like the 30 seconds I have left, I can't possibly explain everything that's going on here. Even if I had 30 hours, I don't know that I could do it. But what we do see is that God is sovereign over human hearts. And he chooses sometimes to say to some, your heart is hard, and to others, your heart is soft. And the trumpets are going to prove the hardness or softness of our hearts. Now, this is actually not just a one-way thing that's happening here. Not just God saying, like, Pharaoh, you know, I just don't like you, and I'm going to give you a hard heart. Because just a few verses later, chapter 7, verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 7, verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Sure sounds a little bit like Pharaoh saying, I choose not to listen. I choose not to do. I choose not to believe. And exactly what the relationship between those two statements is, I'm not sure any human alive can parse out. Where does God's sovereignty end in my heart and my own will begin? I don't know. But in either case, the plagues function, or the trumpets and the plagues function not just to warn people, repent, because there really is a God in heaven who is watching. But actually, it proves what's already in our hearts. My friend, uh, Jonathan, I've spoken about him a few times, who had brain cancer and then he was healed just a few weeks ago. I, I confess to you, that when this happened, I was looking for any explanation other than the supernatural explanation. That's in my heart. And I often do that. I look for the natural explanation rather than, oh, God did it. There are a lot of reasons I do that. One of them just feels kind of embarrassing sometimes to admit you believe in God and the culture that we live in. This isn't a positive thing, I'd say, in my life. Just the opposite. I'd say it's a place where my faith needs some work. My friend Jonathan uh, went into the doctor and they said, you are in remission and you shouldn't be. We have no explanation for how this happened. And my friend Jonathan, who said from the very beginning, God told me he was going to heal me. I don't know if I shared this with you, but I actually called him and said, are you sure? 
And I, I wasn't trying to break down his faith, but I was trying to be like, you're ready for if you've misunderstood what God was saying, right? My friend who has said from the beginning, God will heal me, when those doctors told him, your cancer is gone and we don't know why, he said, I do. God healed me. I told you. He didn't call me and tell me I told you so as well uh, because he's a nicer man than I am. So, <clears throat> But Jonathan's cancer revealed what was in my heart. This slowness to trust that God actually acts in these ways. It's easy to believe he did it for Moses. It's easy to believe he did it for Jesus. It's hard to believe he'd do it for me and the people that I love. Should probably see a psychologist about this. But the way we respond to God's judgment in the world also reveals what's already in our hearts. See, I think it's far more the case that when we go through hard times in life, it doesn't actually change what was already in our heart, but it reveals instead. A good friend of mine, I went to Biola with him. He was a believer, and his mom died of cancer. And he said, I just couldn't believe anymore. Is it because he maybe never really knew God in the first place, and that's what was being revealed? Or was there something else going on? I, I don't have the answer. If I did, maybe I could help my friend better than I can now. But in either case, the hard things in life far more often reveal what's already in us. We can't go around blaming them for the things that are wrong in our lives. And the good news is, the good news is, James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And you say, that's a stupid idea, James. But James goes on and he says, because you know that the testing, the proving of your faith will make you more like Jesus Christ. There's no Christian in the Bible, I think, who says, yes, God, judge the snot out of me. Bring me hard times. But the Bible is full of stories of people who said, the hard times I didn't want made me the man or the woman that I am today, and I love God all the more deeply for it. The trumpets show us that God is already at work judging evil in this world. They show us that, uh, they call us, they call us to account for our lives in one way or another as a warning about the God in heaven who sees, as a reinforcement of this is who you really are, and as the reminder to God's people that God has already won. And our job is simply to faithfully watch.